Welcome to Uncontained, episode 142. I'm your host, Aaron Static Render, and on the show today, I speak with Hunter Ferris. He's the host of the Song Appeal podcast, where he takes a look into the music you listen to and figures out why you like it or what effect it has on you. So he takes he takes a look into music theory of songs, but takes the dry stuffiness of it out of it and breaks it down into easy pieces for the average human being to understand and actually take something away and enjoy. He takes a look into songs such as Fallout Boys, Sugar We're Going Down, um, Charlie Daniels Band, uh, The Devil Went Down to Georgia, even some theme songs like the Animaniacs or horror theme songs like Jaws or Michael Myers and it explains why those make us feel the way we do. So I won't keep you waiting much longer. Let's just go ahead and jump on into the interview. This is How Hunter Ferris Lives Uncontained. How are you doing today, Hunter? Hey, Aaron. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, man. Uh, so let's let's talk about your podcast just a little bit, uh, Song Appeal. And like I literally like binge listened to I think just about all the two seasons that you have posted right now. Um, yes, mission accomplished. <laughs> yes, exactly. I was like, I must listen during my commute. I I gotta know why this song is good or why this song makes me feel this way. So, what is it that uh, kind of got you into the podcast or even like? Where are you in the music industry? Like, what are you? What are you studying? Where do you get the credentials to break down songs? That is a really good question, and I hate my answer. You ready? <laughs> yes. I'm a guy who's willing to spend hours listening to interviews and reading scientific uh, peer-reviewed journal articles and reading blog posts and uh, looking at people on uh, looking at YouTube videos about music theory and everything that I possibly can to make sure that I can bring people the best information they can have. But you probably noticed while you were listening to all those episodes that I quote other people a lot. You do. You do. We have credentials. I am a guy who likes music and likes psychology. Now that said, I'm a guy with relative perfect pitch. I'm a guy who's been playing piano for 19 years. Okay. I'm a guy who knows a lot of music theory, but I'm not Hunter Ferris PhD or something like that. <laughs> I'm a guy who's willing to do the research to be able to quote the guys who do have letters after their names. Okay, so it's not Hunter Ferris the pop professor or something like that. No, nah, no, there actually is a guy of that. Uh, Clifford Strum, I think is how his name is pronounced. I don't know. He goes by the pop song professor. Still, you you do have a lot of knowledge about the music. I can tell that. But what what I like about the show is even someone like me who I'm I'm just an enjoyer of music. I don't really know like all the music theory behind things, but the way you talk about, the way you quote other people, and like wrap things up, you kind of bring it together nicely in an easy way to digest. That's really what I'm hoping for. Um, I came into this realizing that there are a lot of people who hate music theory. So (laughs) 
I came into this saying, let's forget about teaching musicians music theory or songwriters music theory. Let's teach the common man music theory. Let's teach why anybody should give a darn about music theory. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. Going into listening to the podcast, I I, I wasn't sure what to expect. I didn't know if it was going to be a dry, like, okay, we like this song because this and this and this happened. And me have no clue what that talking about diminished chords and stuff like that. But some of the topics that you covered, like you did the Animaniacs theme song which I found myself singing along to as I heard it. I, I like heard it in the background even before you mentioned what it was. I was like, we're totally insane totally zany. <laughs> and that episode, was it why we remember lyrics to songs or was it how a song can help set the mood for what you're about to watch? It was the one about setting the tone for the show that we're about to watch by not having memorable lyrics. Okay, all right. Yeah, because they changed the like one line up like 37 times or something like that. I just made that number up, but... Yeah! So, what is it, what is it that took you from playing piano, um, listening to music, knowing some music theory, to putting out a podcast about how people are affected and why people like music. So I'd always had this big question in my mind of why do we like that, that song? Like a lot of people would hear the question, why do we like that song and respond? It's catchy. I hear it's catchy. And I ask, what is catchy? Why is that catchy? Okay. How do I make something catchy? Tell me the science of catchy. <laughs> you can tell I'm a bit of a nerd. Anyway, <laughs> it's all good. I, I had this question from like when I was, I don't know, 11. I don't know when I actually started getting this question. Eventually, I picked up some music theory from an excellent high school choir and an excellent theory book and stuff like that. Now, we're talking like super simple theory book. Like this was a theory book that I was using to teach six-year-olds. Okay. But it was just random theory stuff that I'm like, whoa, that's so cool. I didn't know this existed. Anyway, um, eventually I start. Eventually, I pull up a couple old songs that I really liked, and I ask, "Wait, why do I like this song anyway?" <laughs> and I started listening to "Sugar We're Going Down" by Fall Out Boy, and notice this really cool music theory stuff about how the notes on the scale interact with each other in "Sugar We're Going Down," and I'm like, "Whoa, I could write a book about this." And then I listened to Just the Girl by the Click Five, and I'm like, this is one of my favorite songs from when I was a kid. And I noticed this really cool bit about the song structure, and I'm thinking, whoa, I could write a book about this. <laughs> I should probably start putting some stuff out, because I've noticed some stuff about music theory that's actually cool. So from there, um, this is the part that's kind of weird. You ready? I am ready. I never wanted to make a podcast. Okay, then how did you just stumble on making a podcast or what? More or less, I was aiming to make a YouTube series and I missed. I was aiming to make a YouTube video essay series, something like The Nerd Writer or something like that. But um, I, I absolutely loved video essays. Lessons from the Screenplay is still my favorite YouTube channel, and I get so happy whenever I hear his intro. <laughs> so I, I write out these scripts and I'm trying to make YouTube video essays. But the problem is I, I finish recording the audio and I finish editing all the music for the audio. 
And then I realized editing audio is hard. And then I realized <laughs> editing video is harder. It is. So out of sheer laziness, I gave up on the on the video essay channel and said, I will make video essays when I'm ready. But for now, I'm going to get really good at editing audio. And about, I don't know, six months later, I took two weeks off the podcast and spent those two weeks just making one video. Finally made one video. Okay. And said, okay, I'm not doing this right now. No videos right now. So <laughs> essentially, I was trying to make a YouTube video essay channel. That's what I was aiming for. I missed and decided, you know what? Podcast, that'll work. I'll put out a podcast for now. Right on, right on. Well, it sounds good. And I can see how in the future, like when you, I don't know, maybe have a team working with you or something like that, it'll be, I can see how this could transfer to a video podcast. I could definitely see some, uh, some cool graphics going along with how you're explaining things and, uh, you know, a little something for the visual learner. Well, thank you. I really hope to be able to put that out sometime soon. Okay, so you can expect that by the end of the year, right? No, I'm, I'm kidding. Oh, no. <laughs> so what what did you make the video to? You said you finished one video. Yeah, it was um, Rewrite the Stars from The Greatest Showman. I had a full episode done about that. And then I added clips from The Greatest Showman on top of that that would illustrate what I was talking about. And I added graphs and charts. And I added a video of a piano showing which notes I was playing to give a little bit of a visual demonstration and stuff like that. And I took probably a week just making sure that the clips from The Greatest Showman would be actually educational and not just setting the tone because I really don't want to get sued. Yeah, definitely. That's a that's a fine line you have to walk. Yeah. So the moment I put up the video essay, probably about five minutes later, and this is a 12-minute video, probably about five minutes later, Fox takes it down. So I go through the appeals process, which is essentially email Fox and say – this video shouldn't be taken down and here's why which was every single clip is used for educational purposes and about a day later they said okay you can have the video back <laughs> cool cool so they luckily you know they they let you have it and so is that up on youtube now so people can check it out yeah real quick what's your youtube channel so we can throw that out and get, so people can check out what a potential video will look like it's song appeal. It's exactly what you would expect it to be. All right. It's good to throw that out, though. Get into people's memory. So you cover a pretty wide range of songs, anywhere from Fallout Boy to Kenny Chesney to theme music for um, for films. All right. What is it that, uh, and we'll get into a little series that you have in a little bit, but what is it that makes a song show worthy for you that is a great question um number one i again i want to show why normal people should care about music theory so i try to make it songs that people actually like not just hits because let's be honest did anybody actually does anybody still like baby by justin bieber <laughs> i don't know I'm trying to do the songs that people actually enjoy listening to, like that they would actually turn on on their own playlists. Okay. The problem is I don't know what those are, so I usually <laughs> just go for what I enjoy. Anyway, um, I try to make them songs that as many people as possible can enjoy. From there, 
this is a little bit of a weird way that I, I have two different ways of picking a song. One is I listen to random music until something catches my ear and I go, oh, that's interesting. Go find out why that works. And then I make an episode about that song. That's how right at the end of the episode about Some Nights by Fun, I ask, wait, why isn't this episode about such and such song? It's because Some Nights was the one that caught my attention. <laughs> Because some nights did that idea in such a more interesting way than the other song did. And that's the other way that I pick songs. So, like, I'll pick a specific topic that I want to talk about. And then I'll spend probably a month looking for the exact right song that deals with that topic perfectly. One that one that demonstrates that topic in a really interesting way, more interesting than other songs would. But also where that topic is the most interesting topic about the song. So like, I might be talking about a, I might be trying to find a good song about a specific lyrical tool, but then find okay, I found a song that demonstrates that lyrical tool perfectly, but it has something more interesting about it. So I'm going to talk about the more interesting thing instead. It's a really weird balance. Okay, all right. So you may start out going one way, but then be like, oh wait, I found this out. Let's let's hit this up instead, and uh, the whole show has changed just because one other thing caught your attention. Yeah, that's happened a couple times. <laughs> is there is there any genre of music that you haven't covered yet, or aren't or aren't uh, aren't planning on covering? Oh, absolutely, I haven't covered rap yet i haven't covered hip-hop yet i haven't covered classic country i haven't covered uh heavy metal i haven't covered classical music there's a lot of stuff that i haven't covered yet but if i can find the right songs i will absolutely cover them okay. of course those right songs in the super niche genres will be the most popular song from the genre i want the song that most people can relate to i'm a big metal fan so uh that'd be kind of interesting to hear your take and breaking down a metal song oh i'd love to do that sometime there's some really cool music theory stuff in metal songs i just haven't found the right song yet like the one thing that i've always like thought or like believed is like metal like actually not not the power chord metal the uh, scalistic metal is the closest to classical music as there is besides classical music just add distortion that's a really interesting take on it who who exactly are you thinking you can go with Lamb of God, any of these guitar-centric bands like Shadows Fall, even if you went with like some of the solos from Metallica or something like that. It's all scales, you know, like Slayer. If you took like Raining Blood, for example, like the then like compare that to... Okay, what you were just humming for me there is called a sequence. Yeah. It's where you take a bit of music and then you do exactly the same thing higher or lower that was like one of the trademarks of Haydn and vivaldi it's absolutely the kind of thing they would be doing it's just played on an electric guitar instead of on violins yeah so there you go <laughs> i don't feel pressured to do an episode on that but i think uh i think think you could have something there well, i mean i used to really enjoy power metal yeah i know very different from, th from thrash metal. I didn't actually enjoy thrash metal. I just absolutely loved the sheer energy of power metal. I enjoy power metal too. Don't get me wrong, but I, I don't know. That's just that's just an interesting takeaway. I think you could do on your show a little uh, metal to classical 
comparison because I think a lot of people who don't actually listen to metal just hear the distortion. I really wish I could hear the actual musicality of it, but like when it comes to thrash metal, most of what I hear is the distortion and the double bass pedal and the screaming, and it gets really hard for me to separate those into actual music. You know, it's in my opinion, it's kind of kind of the same thing. Like, uh, well, like people say with rap, they don't understand the lyrics. People say with metal, they don't under like they, it's just like audio sludge. But the more you listen to either one of them, the more your ear becomes trained to be able to separate the guitar from the bass and sort out the distortion and hear what's going on in there. Yeah, yeah. I would probably need to spend a little bit of time on a deep dive into metal to really understand what's going on, or I would just interview somebody who knows more than I do. There you go. There you go. Um, so now, what is your favorite style of music to break down? Ooh, favorite style of music to break down. So this is going to be a really weird answer. You ready? Yes. I like breaking down the music that everybody else thinks is worthless. Okay. I like breaking down like Miley Cyrus, Rebecca Black, Justin Bieber, uh, The Middle by Zed Marin Morris and Gray, all, all those songs that absolutely blew up the charts and within a week everybody thought was absolute garbage because they'd heard it so much. <clears throat> I like taking those ones and saying, hey, some people actually do like this song. Let's see why. There's a good reason that this song became number one for, for eight straight months. Let's see why. Did you figure out why? Did you figure out the formula? What is the typical reason that songs like that become popular so much? Um, I usually don't take a look at a genre as a whole. I usually take a look at specific songs. So I haven't been able to see what pop does that other genres don't. And I haven't been able to see what other genres do that pop doesn't in order for pop song, in order for straight bubblegum pop to be so popular. Okay. buddy who that's all he does his whole thing is finding out why pop songs become big hits and a lot of what he's talked about is how they follow the formula but they tweak it a bit now, the problem is that formula is like 37 steps and five of them you have to do one of these things and three of them you have to do two of these things it's more like graduating from college than it is playing three chords and hoping that it works because <laughs> just the formula is just so convoluted people like professional songwriters will say there's no formula in pop and i'm like yes there is you just haven't found it yet yeah yeah they might mean like the formula to making a hit song like and people actually like it but yeah i'm sure there is some something similar size just attractive looking people (laughs) uh there's a lot of math involved a lot like there's a lot of symmetry involved there's a lot of times where they'll play a short bit of music that they played earlier on in the song just to remind you what was going on. Like they'll play the same three notes in a completely different context. They'll play the same four notes five times in a row, but precede them with random other notes to make it look not mathy, but to be extremely mathy. Like this is the kind of thing that I want to give some crypt cryptography nerd and say, go figure out the code because it's really dense with the math and with no, there's actually a word for it. It's song math or melodic math. 
it's been used in an insane amount of hip-hop songs, and I'm pretty sure that's one of the big secrets. All right, yeah, and, like, there's... To go back to metal one more time, there's also, like, math metal where everything's, like, off time, and most people wouldn't be able to tell what the time signature is unless you know music. Max Martin decided to go in exactly the opposite direction and make songs that were so amazingly symmetrical that it was, like, a work of art. It was, like, looking at a painting. He's he's the Spielberg of songwriting. He's most known for Hit Me Baby One More Time and I Want It That Way. Okay, I've heard of those. <laughs> More recently, he did uh, Can't Stop the Feeling by Justin Timberlake. He did like every Katy Perry song. Like Katy Perry is a songwriter. She's part of a songwriting group of Max Martin, Dr. Luke, uh, Bonnie McKee, and Katy Perry. And they all get together in a room and make Katy Perry's next song. So like w- one of her personal songwriters is the best in the world. Wow. There's a reason she blew up so much. Uh, Shake It Off by Taylor Swift. That was one of his big ones. Okay, so he's definitely got a resume. Uh. (laughs) So, like, when I say he's the Spielberg of songwriting, I should probably clarify what I mean by that. If he were, say, if he made, like, one incredibly big pop song, I would call him, like, the J.K. Rowling of songwriting. Okay. If he made, like, seven insanely big pop songs, like, you give love a bad name and bohemian rhapsody and those level of pop songs i call him the james cameron of songwriting no this guy has more number one hits than anybody else ever except paul mccartney and michael jackson wow this guy has 22 number ones and that's just his number ones getting a number one in a year is absolutely amazing this guy has 22 of them he's the spielberg of songwriting that is impressive right there. That is impressive. So is your goal is your goal to learn how to write all these songs and then become the next Spielberg of uh, songwriting? No. <laughs> like, I enjoy writing songs. It's just it takes me a solid year to write a song because I want to make sure to get the lyrics exactly right. So like six months later, I'll go back and say, that word needs changed. That one word right there. Or that line being changed, stuff like that. So it takes me like a solid year to get one song done. <clears throat> More importantly, um, what I want to do here is I want to, well, one, I want to help people to become enthusiastic about music theory. And two, I want to help other people to become absolutely amazing songwriters. Those are definitely good goals because, like, you got my mind running, like, thinking about, okay, what does make a song good? What does this? Yes. Even songs that you don't necessarily think about, including theme music. Um, Like you just recently uh, did a um, month-long Halloween theme um, music analysis, basically taking like themes from Jaws, from Halloween, and uh, breaking them down and letting and explaining why people are terrified of them. But, you know, it's really cool to know that even stuff that we just subconsciously ingest has intent behind it. Like when you were explaining the Jaws music theory and then the Michael Myers music theory, it was just, uh, I didn't know it was that complex and how changing one note uh, can make that big of a difference in how you feel. It was a lot of fun. 
for those of you who haven't listened to Song Appeal, uh, definitely check out uh, check out the podcast and uh, listen to the Halloween theme songs. One of my other favorites was Animaniacs, as I mentioned earlier. But so you know what we're talking about here. So was there a common theme in horror music that made it scary? I kind of recapped this in my last episode about the Twilight Zone. I guess by the time this comes out, it'll be the second to last episode. But I was doing an episode about the Twilight Zone theme and basically wrapping up that the big point about horror music is that you take something on screen and you represent it with music that's unusual and music that makes us uncomfortable in some way by not being, well, normal. Okay. Like what could not be normal about a song, I guess? That's kind of what I'm asking like what are some of the things that make us feel uncomfortable like what i always thought like in horror movies like i took a film analysis class and everything and we were talking about uh, i believe it was psycho and (laughs) uh one of the things was like the high pitch and low pitch sounds together can make people feel uneasy well yeah it's the musical it's the musical equivalent of putting you in a sauna and then dunking your, your head in the ice bucket. <laughs> I like that analogy. That that's good. That's good. Um it, it's a physical way to put someone in shock if you do it just right. Please do not do it right. Please do not <laughs> put people in shock through your music. Uh, answer the question more specifically of what can be unusual, literally everything. Like you were talking about, switching between high and low pitches, that's not something normal. Um, Doing extremely low pitches, that's like a horror cliche at this point. Not something normal. Doing very basic, boring sounds, infrasound more or less, and then following it up with a jump scare, that's not normal. Doing a weird time signature, by definition, weird time signatures are not normal. (laughs) not normal uh having weird intervals not normal having weird noises coming from your mouth like not normal you could put you could do just literally anything that isn't pop music (laughs) anything that we usually don't hear and it would make good horror music one thing that i didn't talk about on the halloween episode i wanted to talk about this I, i can't talk about it yet on the podcast if you want, I can give you a little deleted scene that might illustrate this well. Okay. Here's the thing. I need to do an episode about four-bar phrases that we do – that we hear a lot of music that separates its sections into multiples of four. So like you'll hear a measure that's four beats, and then you'll hear four measures, and that'll be a verse. Or you'll hear eight measures, and that'll be a verse. Or you'll hear 16 measures, and that'll be a verse, a pre-chorus, and a chorus. There's a lot of fours in music, but it's not just that there's four beats to a measure. It's that there's four measures to a section, and then there's six measures to a bigger section. Technically, what it's called is a hypermeasure. The point is, sometime I'm going to be doing an episode about a hypermeasure or about four-bar phrases, about having sections that are four bars long. And our brains are just really, really used to having sections that are four bars long because we've heard that so much. I want to dare somebody to show me a song that doesn't use that. Okay. So the next week, I'm after that, I'm going to put an episode about not doing that and about how to make that sound good. Anyway, the point is, 
Um, so you've got an insane amount of songs to use four bar phrases and use multiples of four to create verses and choruses and stuff like that. The Halloween theme does not do that. The Halloween theme does seven measures of a section. And then it'll do like 15 measures of a section. It'll do almost a multiple of four. And then it will change just before we expect it to change just to unnerve us a little bit more. <laughs> I couldn't put that yet on the podcast because I needed to do an entire episode about four bar phrases first. But that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about, about taking normal stuff and then just not doing it. That sounds really cliche. That sounds really simple. It It is. But honestly... I'm not talking about bad horror music. I'm not talking about the music that we think of and say, oh, that's just a guy slamming his hand on the lowest part of the piano. No, I'm talking about the really good horror music. I'm talking about the horror music that came out 40, 50 years ago, and it still scares us. Yeah. If you listen to like ho- like the crappy horror music, you don't ever remember what song that is, or if you heard it playing, you don't necessarily remember that, but you hear Jaws, you know, instantly. Mm-hmm. That said, most of the horror music that we actually remember, most of the horror music that you could actually hum for me or like actually vocalize in some way. I mean, what's the most recent horror movie that had a score that you could hum? God, I I couldn't couldn't tell you. I, I could name a horror movie with a good soundtrack, but as far as like humming, not really. Like uh, okay. Rob, Rob Zombie's movies typically have a good soundtrack to them but but it's not like jaws you know so let's put some release years to this and let's make let's let's put some context here um jaws 40 years ago actually 43 years ago jaws came out in 1975 there was no such thing as a superhero movie when jaws came out wow uh halloween 1978 Friday the 13th, 1980. Uh, The Twilight Zone, 1955, I think. Might be getting that wrong. It's back there. (laughs) Yeah, the Twilight Zone was before the moon landing, for crying out loud. And then the next one I could hum for you is Saw, which, dude, Saw came out 14 years ago. If that doesn't make you old, I don't know who you are, but like... (laughs) that that blows my mind but what also blows my mind is just how few horror scores are truly memorable that we go from 1980 to 2004 and then since 2004 haven't had anything that's truly memorable i'm not saying that's a bad thing real quick though now um then we'll move on to uh what you have coming up but do you think that having the musical score ingrained in your head like the ones you mentioned jaws twilight zone um even saw has to do solely with the music or does it have to do with the visual images that came along with it that is a great question i i know that's like a super cliche in podcasting that actually is a great question um I watch a lot of video essays, I mentioned that earlier, and a lot of them like to talk about why the Marvel scores aren't memorable. 
Like, you have no idea. There was one video essay that I've seen six video essays on the topic of why the Marvel scores aren't memorable. Yeah. And every single one of them talks about when the song is put into the movie. <laughs> so, like, basically what the video essays on YouTube will tell you is that if you have a song that is in, a, in an emotionally powerful moment that has little dialogue and then that theme is used frequently throughout the movie or franchise, it will be memorable. And those are extremely important components to it, except Pacific Rim. Pacific, Did you watch Pacific Rim? I have not seen Pacific Rim, actually. You're probably not missing anything, but like, there's, I'm not going to spoil anything from the movie. There's a really emotionally powerful moment early on with no dialogue, and they play this real, they, they play this theme that's used frequently throughout the ser- throughout the movie. I don't know if it's used in Pacific Rim Uprising. And I don't know anybody who could possibly hum that for me. <laughs> I couldn't hum it for you five minutes later. Like if you pause the movie five minutes after that really powerful moment, I would not be able to hum it for you. So I think one, it's extremely important to have the song played at the right time. Like welcome to Jurassic Park. Okay. That is the perfect moment. It's emotionally powerful. It's, very little dialogue you're going to have that theme played a lot the bond rifle sequence emotionally powerful little dialogue you're going to hear that theme a lot the star wars opening crawl you get the idea yeah but also the tune itself has to be a memorable tune otherwise you're going to get pacific rim okay yeah so it has to be like one hand washes the other type thing yeah it has to be both Okay. All right. Cool. I was kind of wondering, like, how much, like, if you thought that the visuals, because visual, like, is a powerful sense as well as auditorial sense. When you combine them together, I think that makes even a stronger impression on people. So, um, now let's move from horror music, sharks, serial killers, and all that stuff to what your next series is going to be. So over the month of November, I'm going to be going back to doing normal stuff, but I'm going to try to put out the biggest normal stuff that I possibly can. Like the episode that came out last Friday, being the Friday before this episode, before this podcast episode is released, not the Friday before we did this conversation. Okay. The, the episode <laughs> that comes out November 2nd there we is go. about Bohemian Raps. Really? Yeah. Like, I don't think you can get bigger. I, I, what like, what aspect of that song did you choose to talk about? There's so many different aspects. That's what I chose to talk about. Okay. The fact that there are so many different aspects. The song is incredibly novel. And novelty gives our brains a dopamine release. And then it keeps being novel by giving us a brand new genre every uh, 30 to 120 seconds. <laughs> so that we get a brand new dose of dopamine because of novelty definitely and like anybody from probably my generation and on the moment they hear bohemian rhapsody they think of wayne's world as well <laughs> i mean my generation hears bohemian rhapsody and they just think bohemian rhapsody and they start singing along i'm just amazed at how many people can sing along to bohemian rhapsody I know, I know. It's kind of it's kind of crazy. When it comes to Bohemian Rhapsody, what I wanted to do was I wanted to say that it it goes through a lot of different things, and each of those things is really well done. Like it's an actually well done opera section, and it's an actually well done barbershop quartet, and an actually well done piano ballad. And then I realized 
I have two days to write this thing and record it. Um, I can't in, I can't interview the right people in two days in order to get a good sol- solid opinion about opera music and a good solid opinion about barbershop quartets and a good solid opinion about hard rock guitar solos. And on top of that, you know, honestly, I don't think I can actually say anything about that right now. Maybe later on I'll like revisit Bohemian Rhapsody like next year or something. Anyway, um, on the other hand, I basically just went on Google Scholar and searched for Bohemian Rhapsody. And started looking at what research have people done about this song. So it was a crazy process just trying to decide what to talk about. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm looking forward to hearing that uh, episode. So I'll definitely be checking that out. But after November, after November, you're moving into uh, a holiday-themed music series, correct? Of course. What music channel cannot talk about Christmas music for a solid month? I'm just surprised you didn't start right after uh, 4th of July. <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted to do a 4th July, a 4th July episode. Anyway, um, Christmas music. Yeah. For Halloween, I was doing a whole thing about what makes music scary. For Christmas, I wanted to talk about why these songs sound Christmassy and then said, you know what? Adam Neely did a better video about that than I'll ever do. Maybe I'll do an episode about what makes a certain melody sca- a certain melody Christmassy, but I'll leave that for next year. For now, let's just talk about why we like these songs in the first place. Okay. So can you say which songs you're planning on doing? I wish I could, but the issue is that's one of my rewards for patrons, and it would kind of cheapen the experience for patrons if I put that out freely i'm sorry i just don't want to be rude to my patrons no understandable not, like, put it behind a paywall i need this though i'm planning on doing at least one episode about christmas santa winter and all the types of songs that you hear at christmas okay all right so uh definitely check that out i got it sounds like you could give advice on music and podcasting as well so what advice would you give to somebody who is one looking to get started out as a musician or two if you want to drop some uh, podcasting advice throw some at us as well sounds good um for muse for musicians honestly my whole thing is make making sure that the audience gets the effect that you want because a song might have a particular effect to the songwriter but not have that same effect on the audience Okay. And I want to make sure that songwriters get exactly the effect that they want to have in their audience. You want you want your song to sound like there's a specific character singing the song? Okay, let's figure out how to get that impression on your audience. So that's why I talk about music theory and psychology. My biggest piece of advice about that, learn music theory. Learn psychology. You'll learn how to get the effect that you want on your audience I'm not saying to use music theory to tell you what to do. Okay. So what are you saying? What I am saying is using music theory to learn how to do what you want to do. People keep thinking that music theory is just going to tell them what notes are wrong. I'm like, no, it's not wrong. It just doesn't fit in this exact song. Like, it'll fit in a different song. If you were doing such and such other song, it would be great. This song... Not so much, because it'll take away from the effect you want. That note will not be scary, and you want this song to be scary. you got to know the tools so that you can use them. I mean, people keep thinking that music theory is a set of rules. That's like going into your dad's toolbox and thinking this is a set of rules. 
Interesting. Okay, I got you. I'm picking up what you're laying down. Most kids don't know how to use the tools in their dad's toolbox. And it would make sense to go up to the kid and say, don't use this tool during a specific project. And then the kid thinks, don't use this tool ever. No, what he's what we're saying is don't use this tool during this project because it works better for this project over here because you don't want to use an Allen wrench to break open your car. <laughs> very true. This tool wor- will work very well to get this exact effect. So when you want that effect, use it and use it a lot and use it well. But when you don't want that effect, don't use the thing that's going to give that effect. Makes complete sense right there, man. So that that's actually really good advice. So learn your tools so you can use them so you're not uh, using a hammer loose in a lug nut. Exactly. A lot of people... A lot of people teach music theory as a set of rules. I teach music theory as a set of tools. There are a lot of other people who teach music theory as a set of tools. When you run across somebody who teaches music theory as a set of rules, interpret those rules as tools. Try to figure out what they actually mean. Okay. Very cool, man. So basically, go learn how to use the tools so you make the music you want to make. And uh, what about for podcasting? Um, I have some very strong opinions about podcasting because I came into podcasting from such a weird way. Okay. I came into podcasting starting from a starting from a perspective of video essays and then coming into podcasting as basically just audio video essays. Like I'm basic. My podcast is basically what would happen if you turned on a series of video essays on YouTube and then turned off your monitor and couldn't see the visuals. That's basically what my podcast is. So I come into it from a very content-driven, focused, sterilized approach where all I want is to make absolutely sure that my audience understands this one point. I know that doesn't work for everybody. There are lots of ways to do podcasts. Yeah. My perspective on podcasting is content is king. Presentation serves content. Everything else should serve presentation or should serve content. The way I see it is if something doesn't serve my content, I won't do it. During the Jaws episode, I really wanted to do this thing. Um, early on in the episode, I talked about how jo- how the Jaws theme made sharks scary. Yeah. Even though selfies kill more people than sharks every year. So from there, my thought was that every single time I said the word shark, I would follow it up by saying something that kills more sharks, more people than sharks do every year. And then I realized <laughs> that is really not going to help with the content of the episode. The content is, it's a piece of music that represents what the shark is doing and how the shark acts. It really wouldn't help get that point across. It would be funny, but it really would distract from the content, and it would really distract from the point. So I just threw that out entirely. Okay. I record entire episodes, deleted the entire episode, and then rewrote the entire episode and re-recorded because I want to make sure my audience gets this one idea really clearly in each individual episode. There are other people who take very different approaches to podcasting. I just really like it when a podcast has a point, sticks to that point, and makes that point very, very clearly. That's what I like in a podcast. So, like, I listen to a lot of Freakonomics. I listen to a lot of Revisionist History. I listen to, oh, what was that other show? Uh, Hidden Brain from NPR. I listen to a lot of podcasts that are very not podcasty. Okay. And this is what I meant when I say that I don't like most podcasts because 
I want a podcast to be very content focused, very driven toward a certain point. And a lot of podcasts are more designed to be about the atmosphere and are designed to be about uh, putting you in the situation of overhearing two guys having a conversation. That's where I kind of fall in there. But what my take on podcasts is I do when when I'm listening to a show like yours, I like to, you know, get the point, get uh, get all the information. But if I'm listening to a conversational podcast, I like it to be actually conversational. I okay. I get fed up like I get sick when the host has a set list of questions that he asks every guest every time and it's so like cookie cutter as far yeah, as the questions like go I, I i really respect when the host um who is interviewing the guest is listening to what the guest says and then turns around and asks questions based on the guest's answers and oh, absolutely. That that's something I respect listening to. And like Oh, absolutely. And that is what my goal is as in this podcast along with get information that will help out people who are looking to get into the entertainment industry and you know, help them get the foot in the door or take take their craft to the next level. I fully agree about the point of actually listening to what your guest said, because if you're not going to listen to your guest, why are you having them on the show? Exactly. Sorry, I just – I get really fed up when I can tell that somebody isn't listening. It's just a it, – it's a pet peeve of mine. So – I'm sorry. Time, what did you say? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, I get <laughs> – I, I'm wow. just being it. I totally fell for that. <laughs> I totally fell for that. Good job. I'm just fucking with you, but all right. But that that's my rant. I don't like cookie cutter things. So Hunter, you mentioned that you really like uh, the content driven podcast. Your podcast is very content driven. And uh, do you have any advice like to? a podcaster who's wanting to do a podcast along the vein of yours as far as delivering the content, which I've said a bunch right there, but uh, <laughs> um, do you have any advice on like how they can get that content across in an effective way? Yeah. So I like to write a script for each of my episodes. Other people might not like that, but the main reason I write a script is that I can have my the order of my points work really, really well. So I start out with an outline. This is going to sound a lot like essays you read in high school. I told you that I really like video <laughs> essays. This yes. is what I'm talking about. So like, I start out with an outline. I write out every point that I want to make in the order that I want to make it, and then I take a look at that outline and say, is this actually going to help me get my point across? And take a look at when should I say my main point. Because I, I try to have one big main point that I'm trying to make. And then yeah. everything else after and before that is supporting that one big point. <clears throat> I try to organize everything in a way that gets across that one big point. And most importantly, I try to make sure that my audience knows exactly how my little evidences support my big point. Because... Let's be honest. If I just start listing a list of facts after I make my big point and don't show my audience that it'll connect back to the big point, then the audience is going to have no idea how on earth that connects. And it might not connect. I've seen videos where like 
they'll make this huge big claim and then they'll make a, a huge list of facts and I just assume that the facts have to do with the big claim. And then I look over the list and realize, no, none of those actually had to do with the claim. I just assumed they did. Okay. So a lot of my a lot of my work is making sure that everything actually does support the claim that I'm trying to make, which gets a lot simpler when you're just trying to present music psychology. So like you pull up a you pull up a random paper and you start talking about it. But when you start trying to make your own claim, it gets a lot more interesting and a lot more fun. <laughs> Is that question? Okay, yeah, yeah, that's so basically you say you approach it kind of like a essay that you had to do in school, but it's a more interesting topic uh than having to write on something that you didn't really care about in the first place. So <laughs> if you don't really care about your podcast, don't do your podcast. So yeah, it's going to be a whole lot more interesting of a topic to you and to your audience for that matter. Um, if your audience knows exactly what the big point is, they'll be able to connect a lot better with it too. All right. Yeah. And I'm a solo podcaster. So like it's a whole lot easier for me to control exactly what content I have, but I'm trying to bring other people into the podcast. So like, I'll interview a guy about exactly what we're talking about a little while ago. I did an episode about the twilight zone and the, the exact notes in the twilight zone. I called up a guy who's really good at this exact topic and interviewed him, recorded the interview and took clips of what he said and put it into my podcast. Just like you, you would quote a guy in an essay or just like a documentary would quote a guy. Yeah, kind of what I like to call like NPR style, where you're talking about the interview, then you patch in a clip from the interview and continue talking about that clip. And uh, you go on like that, opposed to like a long form interview. Exactly. It, it, it acted a lot like an episode of Freakonomics. All right, man. Those are some really good uh, points on like how if you want to make sure people get the content you're trying to deliver to actually get that across. Now, uh, when you write out your show notes, do you pretty much write everything word for word as uh, you're going to read it? Or is it more like a bullet points? Um, I write out a full script because every once in a while I'll come across a really good way to word things and I'll say I want to use that exact phrase. And when I write out a script, it makes it a whole lot easier to do that. On top of that, when I write out a script, I don't have to sit there for 30 seconds thinking of how to phrase this. Yeah. I I went into an episode once with no sh- with uh with just a a set of bullet points and no script and it took me like half an hour I had like half an hour of just silence trying to figure out how to phrase stuff throughout the episode. It was so awkward. And I messed up some of the facts on that episode where I would just say something wrong. It was about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I would say Captain America, the Winter Soldier when I meant Captain America, Civil War. And after about three or four mistakes like that, I just deleted the entire episode. (laughs) Okay. All right. That is why I write scripts. Fair enough, my friend. Fair enough. Go with what works for you. For a show like yours, I think that works perfect. For like an interview podcast, obviously oh, no. a script wouldn't work for like my type of show here. I, I oh, do yeah, I do the bullet point thing. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that'd be way too hard to do. But anyway, so that is some great advice right there. Now, what is it that you're doing to promote yourself? I know you talk about Patreon a lot on your show. Um, what what are some of the specific things that you're doing to help get the word out about your show? So before, okay, this is going to sound really cheap. I don't mean to sound rude about this, but like... Sorry, I don't mean to sound like I'm using people. That's not what I'm trying to do. I want to make sure that my episodes actually get to the people who want to hear them. I'm doing an episode about Bohemian Rhapsody. I want to make sure that the people who love Bohemian Rhapsody get to hear the episode. Because they would actually enjoy this episode. So today I joined like 15 groups of fans of Queen. Now, let's be honest. I'm not a fan of Queen, but I like Queen's music. I mean, everybody likes Queen's music. There's at least one song from Queen that resonates with you. You might not like get everything that they do, but they have so many different styles. Something has to resonate with you. Yeah. I mean, I like their hits from like the 70s. I don't really know all of their songs. I do, I do like some bands like that, where I know every single song. And I listen to their demo tapes and their unreleased B-sides and stuff like that. Queen is not one of them. Okay. Anyway, so I went and joined like 15 Facebook groups of Queen fans today. And with the Bohemian Rhapsody episode coming out, I would post a, I would post real quick about that episode in each of those Facebook groups. Because those people would actually want to know that somebody did a podcast episode breaking down the science behind Bohemian Rhapsody. So a lot of what I do is Facebook groups. I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I talk with people in my niche a lot. Like I'll just have rent. I'll, I'll see that 12 tone posted this cool thing and I'll have a conversation with him on Twitter. Okay. That's a lot of do by way of Twitter. Just chatting with the people in my niche. All right, cool, man. Yeah, I kind of I like the uh, going in and adding the group of uh, kind of what you're posting. I kind of do some of the same things um, like that. Maybe not twenty five, fifty uh, Queen fan sites, but uh, I said fifteen. Well, I, I was just throwing out numbers. Um, <laughs> but you know you do have to make sure that um the facebook groups allow you to promote um oh, yeah. there's some that are like if you promote you will be deleted from the group and kicked out well on top of that if they're going to kick me out i'm not going to post there yes i get it i respect rules i'm not going to promote in a group that is designed for not promoting that's just rude yeah, yeah, definitely. You do have to obey rules or else people will think you're an asshole or something. Um, but all right, so so yeah, you do you do the Twitter conversations, you do you add groups that relate to the episode that you are going to do. And then I'm interested in how you use uh, Patreon because you mentioned in every episode. Do you have certain episodes that are only for patrons? Yeah, I did like um Okay, so a while ago, I did an episode about how Rewrite the Stars from The Greatest Showman uses variety to to get the listener's attention. The next week, I put out a little three, five-minute Patreon-exclusive mini-sode about how Believer by Imagine Dragons doesn't use variety so that they can not get the listener's attention almost intentionally. It's 
kind of amazing to watch how Imagine Dragons does that. Or like uh, after doing a series about uh, horror music, I put out a five-minute Patreon-exclusive mini-sode about the 28 Days Later theme. Cool, cool. So um, do you ha- what, what level do you have to be at in Patreon in order to get those? Uh, I have a $1 tier, a $3 tier, a $5 tier. I'm trying to figure out how to improve my patrons experience right now yeah but um the three dollar tier is the people who get those who get the patreon exclusive episodes who get the patreon exclusive interviews like i mentioned that i'll use clips from an interview in my episode well i post the full interview to patreon for my three dollar patrons the one dollar patrons get like sneak peeks to episodes so as soon as i'm done with the the cold open and the title sequence those go on patreon that way people can get kind of a sneak peek or trailer to it or like uh i'll post at the beginning of the week here's what here's what episode is coming out here's the patreon exclusive interview that's coming out and that way people can get a little bit of a what's the word a sneak peek okay all right very cool man very cool so you've done pretty much two seasons of your podcast about how long how long in real time have you been doing your podcast for I started at the end of March. It took like a month-long break in August. Very cool. So since since you started, what would be like a highlight or two um, that you would care to share about like some of the experiences you've had as a doing your show, Song Appeal? Some of the episodes themselves have been rewarding. Like I would finish up writing a script and think that is a really good script. I just get to be proud of myself sometimes. <laughs> okay. I've got to make... I've got to make some really good friends. Um, I talk with Asif Paris and Sam Zarin, the heads of Top 40 Theory and Social Media Music Theory, a lot. Like, we just have random Facebook conversations about music. So, a while ago, I wanted to do an episode about the neuroscience of storytelling. I wanted to do an episode about what exactly makes a good story in a song and how that affects us psychologically. And I reached out to this guy, Paul J. Zach. He's a neuroeconomist. I love that title because it just shows that having the word neuro at the beginning of your job title makes you make three times as much money. <laughs> so I reach out to this guy, Paul Jazak. He's a neuroeconomist. His job is to take stories and show their neurological effects. Literally, that's his job. People show him Super Bowl commercials and he shows them to his to his uh to the people in his lab and measures their brains and sees, okay, this one is not as effective, that kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah. And he's like the world's foremost expert on the connection between storytelling and oxytocin. So I reach out to him over email and ask, hey, what's the effect of storytelling in music on oxytocin? And he and he replies, and I'm quoting him here, I haven't a clue, but let me go run a mini experiment on it and I'll let you know. Okay. So then he, so then this professional neuroeconomist starts asking me for advice on how he should run his experiment. Like, what songs should we use? And I'm just freaking out over here. Like, this is amazing. Yeah, that that is awesome, right there. So did did you get results of the test? Yeah. A while later, he a, a while later, I interviewed him and. The reason why we were talking about this in the first place, I wanted to do an episode about the Pina Colada song by Rupert Holmes. And we put two control we put two control songs in there. One was uh, The Devil Went Down to Georgia, which has like no music and all story. 
Yeah. And the other was Angel Mountain High Enough, which has like no story and all music, and the music is like exactly the same as Escape, the Pina Colada song. Okay. So he runs this experiment, gets back to me, and during the interview, he reveals the Pina Colada song had exactly the same results, almost exactly the same results as Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Like, the participants' brains reacted the same way if there were a story versus if there weren't a story. The difference was there was when there was a story and no music. Then what, what was the difference with that? It was the, their brains lit up with oxytocin. Really? So yeah. story with no music is more than, say, music with story or music without story. Now, I didn't want to go to my podcast and say you should stop playing music if you want to tell a story well because that's really not helpful to songwriters. So what I showed was you got to be clear about your story. You need your audience to know exactly what your story is. Because let's be honest, I didn't know there was a story to the Pina Colada song until like the second or third, fourth time I heard it. All I know is she likes Pina Coladas and uh, like doing stuff in the shade. Getting caught in the rain. Oh, in the rain. I'm sorry. My bad. That's right. It's been a long time since I've heard that song. You've seen Shrek. I have. I have. It's been a while. Like you said, we don't really know what the story is the first couple times we hear it, or even the 15th time we've heard it. The full story is this guy's considering cheating on his wife. He takes out a personals ad in the newspaper, writes out what he wants in a, what he wants in a woman he's going to have an affair with, um, gets a response to his ad, and they decide to meet up at this particular bar. He and the girl he's going to have an affair with show up to the bar, and he finds out he's having an affair with his wife. Interesting. Like she was having an affair too. She put a, She responded to a personal ad that was describing basically her, and he, and they both realized how much they actually do appreciate a lot of things about each other that they'd completely forgotten over the last couple decades of marriage. Yeah, and that 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 brings up some questions about that relationship. That song's a lot deeper than I thought it was. <laughs> So again, this is not a very clear story. This is one of those stories that you almost have to tell somebody what the story is to get it. So what I brought out in the podcast was you got to actually you got to make the story really, really clear or else you might as well not have a story neurologically. Yeah, yeah. Another one of those interviews, like I, I sat down with a with a music theory teacher and we just chatted about modes and chords for an hour. It was so much fun. It was like I'd found my tribe. And then like the next day I got to interview one of my idols in this field. 12 tone is it's okay. I want you to imagine a science podcaster interviewing Bill Nye very much like that. 12 tone. He's not a music theorist. He's a music theory presenter, but it was so much fun to get to talk with him. I was like, honored to get to talk with this guy i can imagine that um uh, it'd be i imagine it'd be like me being able to like interview one of the elite podcasters like say uh chris hardwick joe rogan uh mark maron yeah, joe rogan of course of course so um and those are goals of mine to get to interview those people but there's probably a few episodes between here and there so <laughs> I one other really cool experience all right, let's hear it. So I did an episode about the Marvel Cinematic Universe a little while ago about what exactly 
about how the different melodies make us feel like this movie is or is not a superhero movie. Okay. And there was a bunch of conversation on the interwebs about how the Marvel Cinematic Universe themes aren't memorable. Like, could you hum a single theme from the MCU? Mm, maybe the Spider-Man, Spider-Man, uh, the original Spider-Man song. But That's basically what most people can hum out of the MCU. Maybe the Avengers theme. Maybe. Yeah, but for the most part, no, not really. So I show up to Comic-Con and get to present for an hour about why exactly these themes aren't memorable, about why that actually helps the movie, why it's better that the themes aren't memorable, and how those themes change what we think about the movies. I got to speak at Comic-Con. Yeah, that's impressive, man. It's been a lot of fun. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that is definitely a highlight right there. Uh, well, like, what was that experience like? I showed up, got my badge, saying that I'm a panelist. Uh, went to a couple panels, realized, oh, I'm not doing anything like this. Um, um, maybe I should do something different next year. Anyway, <clears throat> show up to my panel, and essentially, I grabbed a micro. Uh, essentially, they gave me a microphone. Yeah, I. People just sit behind a bunch of chairs. I wanted to stand and walk around and talk. And so I did. (laughs) Now, I'd written a literally hour-long script. Actually, I'd written a 45-minute script and talked slowly. Okay. And I was trying to memorize the script. I was trying so hard to memorize the script. And then I get up there, and I've got a bunch of, like, little music clips where I've got, like, 15 seconds of music on my phone, and I forgot to deal with the music clips. Oh, no. So... I realize about t- 10 minutes in that I can just ask the audience to sing it and they know these themes. <laughs> they can hum the MCU themes. So like at one point I mentioned the Ant-Man motif and everybody starts going bum 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 and I'm thinking, "Whoa, I have so much power." It's crazy. So it's a room with like 200 people ish. And every chair is filled. And I realized, you know what? I can't do what I was originally going to do. Forget this. I've been talking about this subject for five months. I can just start talking. Okay. So I just start talking. And my dad did a lot of public speaking stuff and taught us a lot of public speaking skills. And I've been doing public speaking since I was like 11. So I just start getting into public speaking mode and everybody's laughing and everybody's thinking. And some people came up to me afterward and asked some questions. And it was just a lot of fun. Right on, man. It's cool you were able to ad-lib. You know, it's it's important to be able to deviate from the plan if something goes wrong. And just like, okay, well, that sucked. Uh, let's make this work. <laughs> yeah. I so. completely forgot like, three big points I wanted to make. But none of them were that important. Yeah, right on, right on, man. I just went on autopilot, like you're, like you said. I was basically ad libbing. It's important to be able to do, especially you know, if uh, you're going to be doing a lot of public speaking, because it's not always going to go as planned. But um, <sighs> that that is awesome, man. Talking at Comic Con about uh, comic movie scores, uh, the MCU. Um, that's pretty damn cool. We've mentioned you having a content-driven show. 
all right you're breaking down why people like songs um what songs do to affect how you feel now what is it that you want your audience to take away feel or remember about your episode that they listen to that is a really good question um my purpose in life is to change people's thought processes okay i want people to be kinder more enthusiastic and more clever anything Hmm. that i do in life is basically for one of those three purposes my podcast i mean i'm talking about music theory i can't really get people to be kinder or more clever off the top of my head but i can get people to be more enthusiastic there's an entire twitter account where all this girl does is retweet people's complaints about music theory that's it okay like you'll see 16 posts in a day of music theory sucks. That's basically all she talks about. That, that's basically all she does. She just retweets everybody else saying that. And you get to learn really quickly. People hate music theory. If you're a musician, you hate music theory because you feel like it's constraining you and you feel like it's keeping you from, you feel like it's just a bunch of rules. And if you're not a musician, you hate music theory. Cause you're like, I don't understand any of this. <laughs> None of this anything to me. Yes. Yes. None of it matters, and none of it makes any sense, and I hate this stuff. So I'm coming in here thinking, guys, music theory can be really cool. Like, music theory can explain why you like this one song, and that's basically what I want to do. I want people to get to become enthusiastic about music theory. I will tell you this. You have made it fun. You're, like, learning music theory without really feeling like you're learning music theory. Yay! So, and, and that's that's not just you know I'm not just saying that I like I I was expecting that type of show like be like okay he's gonna be dry about um, you know music theory how exciting you know could that be but then I was very pleasantly surprised. Thank you, thank <laughs> you very much. No problem, I'm, man. That kind of stuff. All right. So now what do you do? Like, is, are, is there anything specific you do to help, uh, help create enthusiasm about, about music theory, about your show? Oh yeah. Um, first off, I'm enthusiastic. That does help. I actually enjoy talking about this stuff because I go into it and I'm like, whoa, that's really cool. 50 <laughs> ways to say goodbye is using two completely different scales at the same time. Whoa. So I just absolutely love talking about this stuff. Second, I spend a lot of time making sure that everything makes sense. The first couple episodes, I would send the script to a guy who doesn't know where middle C is. And I'd ask, does everything here make sense? And if he didn't think it made sense, then I rewrote it. Um, Third, I'm talking about songs people actually care about. Like this is one of the things that I think a lot of music theory people don't get most people don't care about most songs because there have been so many songs in the history of ever that nobody cares about Bizet or Ravel. Don't get me wrong. Bizet and Ravel made amazing songs. And like, if you heard one of their songs, you'd be like, oh my gosh, this is great. And you've heard some of their songs, but nobody actually cares. If I were to ask you, hey, do you want to hear about the music theory behind why you like Habanera? You would probably say no. <laughs> But if I ask you if you want to learn the music theory behind why you like the Star Wars main theme, you would totally be in. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) 
So I'm talking about things that people actually care about and things that people can relate to instead of talking about things that nobody cares about for the last 300 years. But we talk about this because it's old and because it's prestigious. I don't want to talk about the things that are prestigious. I want to talk about the things that are popular and beloved. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, man. Plus, plus, chances are, I'm guessing, that you aren't as excited about the pristine and old uh, and uh, prestigious uh, music from back in the day. You're more excited about what you're listening to now. Exactly. I mean, honestly, I... I really enjoy listening to a good leader from list or a good symphony from Sartie, but honestly, I'd really, I don't really list. I don't really look for those. I don't really seek them out. I'd really rather be listening to bowling for Sue, bare naked ladies or Bon Jovi. <laughs> Fair enough, man. Fair enough. I, I, I can't blame you, man. So, Man, I, I can tell that you are excited about what you're talking about, and that does make a world of difference. Now, I've had a great time talking to you here on the show tonight, and um, I do have one final question for you. But before we get to that final question, where can people find you and Song Appeal on this World Wide Web? So, you can find the podcast on any podcast platform like where do you go for podcasts it's there search for song appeal you can find you can also find it at songappealofficial.com if you happen to prefer the web where i also have my transcripts and my show notes and links to hear the songs and links for every article that i talk about and the link to my patreon page you can speaking of which you can find me on patreon at patreon.com slash song appeal or on Twitter or Instagram at Song Appeal or on Facebook at Song Appeal Official. Whew, that was a lot of links. All right, sounds good. And I will include those in the show notes so people can uh, can locate them and uh, locate you. So I do have Thank that you. one final question for you. All right, Hunter, it's been awesome talking to you and uh, have even learned a few more things about music theory on the show here tonight. And um, I will definitely be continuing to listen to Song Appeal. But I do have that one final question, the title question of the show. Hunter Ferris, how do you live uncontained? Let's see. That is a really big question. I mentioned a little while ago that my whole purpose in life is to change people's thought processes, including helping people to become more enthusiastic about things. This podcast is a great way that I can help people who aren't enthusiastic about music theory to at least appreciate music theory a little bit more. So even when people say that this is a bad idea, I can say, yes, it's a bad idea, but it's a good idea for me. Okay. And it's something that really helps me and I hope helps a lot of other along the same lines. I spend a lot of time on the podcast. I probably spend about 20 hours a week research just on research and about 10 hours a week on writing, recording, editing, rewriting and promoting. This is a serious time commitment because I want to make sure that it is excellent, partly because I I want to come into this. I want to come into podcasting about music theory, and this is the crass way of putting it: fix it. 
Okay. I want to come into the situation of people talking about music theory and talk about music theory. And I want to fix a couple problems that music theory is entirely inaccessible. Like a lot of people talk about music theory in terms of tonics and dominance and secondary dominance. And I'm like, guys, I don't know what you're talking about. And the way that you say it, I don't care. So I want to bring it into a position where normal people can understand it. That's kind of one of the ways that I go into any field. Like I started going into film composing a while ago and left out a while after just because I wanted to write better film scores than what I was hearing in Hollywood. I went into piano teaching. That's my, that's my day job because I wanted to teach better than other teachers were teaching. That's one of the things that's just very me about me, where if I'm going to go into a situation, I'm going to do it better than everybody else does, or I'm just not going to try. So one of the reasons why I came into this in the first place was because I can do it in ways that need to be done. I'm not saying that everybody else is doing it poorly. I'm just saying song appeal needs to exist in the music theory community. And if somebody else is going to do it, great. I still want to do it because it, it's it, it's a very me thing to do, but it's it's something that I feel like needs to exist and something that I feel like I need to be the one doing it. I don't know if that answers the question. I think you did a great job of answering the question. So yeah, um, basically I'm gonna try to change the landscape of the game or not do it at all that's uh and it kind of comes across in your podcast that uh you take a different approach to uh music theory now i have all my guests sign off the show for me will you do me the honor of signing off the show tonight hunter Alrighty. thanks so much for listening enjoy your music i'm hunter ferris host of the song appeal podcast and i live uncontained And that does it for another episode of Uncontained. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Hunter Ferris for joining me and uh, sharing his musical knowledge with us all and breaking it down so even someone like me, who is just a music listener, can understand and uh, start start to learn some aspects of music theory. So... If you enjoyed this episode with Hunter, make sure you check out his podcast, Song Appeal. You can find him online at songappealofficial.com and at Song Appeal at all of his social medias. I'll have those in the show notes as well for you to check out. And make sure you stop by uncontainedpod.com and uh, check out the latest episodes of Uncontained along with your favorite pod player of choice so until next time thank you for listening and live uncontained